Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all-time favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. If I were to quote Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 to you, what would you think of? These verses say, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you know to whom this is a reference? It is called a servant song, and depending on your own context, your conclusion of who this servant is will change. So we gathered together Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, Dr. Tupa Guerra, and Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who are all on IBC's faculty, to discuss important aspects we should keep in mind while studying a text like Isaiah 53. In this podcast episode, we will set the conversation with a wide variety of conclusions around who this servant is, and then Dr. Shazer will take us on a textual tour of some of Isaiah's servant songs to see if the wider context can help us have a nuanced understanding of the text. Let's ease into the conversation with Nick and Tupa, who tell us about their familiarity of Isaiah 53 And then what comes to their minds as important considerations before we get into the details of the passage? Lean in and enjoy the conversation. When I was first learning biblical Hebrew way back when, um, this is a text that I, uh, I spent a lot of time translating. The reason for that is the fact that it's a really contested text. And some of the tricky part about um, the prophets in general is that they write in poetry. So what you're reading here is is poetic, and poetry is notoriously more difficult to translate than narrative. Um, it just that just compounds our issues in trying to get at this. I'm so also familiar with the the ongoing debate in the realm of Jewish Christian relations about this text. And so that's kind of always comes to the forefront of my mind. Um, what I'm going to start with, though, is actually going way back to Isaiah's original context, because I think that that's the place we have to start before we start talking about the identity of the servant or the idea that the servant might be Jesus or some other figure in Jewish history. Um, so yeah, a lot of things flood into my mind. The first thing, the first times I read it and the first things I remember, it's I'm always, I'm curious about the historical background, always, as usual. So I'm always curious about how, how was this uh, viewed in the time it was firstly conveyed to people and like in the ancient times, like in the time of Isaiah, if it was written down in that time, how would people react to this and how, who would they think they were talking about and how was uh, then furthermore in history how it was reinterpreted and reused by other people in other ways and reimagined so I'm always I think I'm always interested to imagine 
precisely how the text affect people and how people react to the text. And also, as Nick said, poetry and Hebrew poetry is quite difficult. And especially ancient Hebrew poetry, because it's very different from what we in English understand as poetry. And uh, uh, a lot of the poetic things comes from the, how do we say, the rhythm of the of the reading and the rhythm of that you can get from the words and the sounds. And that's so difficult to translate. And also, of course, as we don't live in the ancient times, we don't know precisely how people would read it and how we have plenty of theories. But I always think it's interesting because I'm pretty sure everyone feels that it makes a difference of how you feel the text, how you react to the text, how you see the message. So I'm, I always, I, I, that's why sometimes I like to listen to things in Hebrew, even though sometimes my Hebrew is not that advanced that I can just pick up everything. But still, I like to listen to the sounds and the music or the poetry that is behind it. It's interesting that both of them pulled out aspects of poetry that is important for how we understand the meaning of the text. We will have to come back to this. But let's turn to Dr. Yeshaya Gruber and ask about the main interpretive options for this text. My guess is that you have heard of at least one of these, but maybe perhaps did not realize there were such diverse conclusions about Isaiah 53. Who is the suffering servant supposed to be? The first one on the list is that this is referring to some anointed individual, um, whether the Messiah or a prophet. And uh, in some sources, this person is identified. It could, in some sources, uh, treated as referring to Isaac or Moses or Jeremiah, who was a prophet who suffered very much, or of course, most famously to Yeshua or Jesus. Other Jewish sources claim that it could be Rabbi Akiva, who's considered the founder of rabbinic Judaism and who uh, was martyred. Or it could just be referring to the Messiah or a prophet who is unnamed, who isn't yet identified. Um, And this, we could say, is the most common interpretation that we find in ancient sources, both Jewish and Christian. They viewed this text as referring to the Messiah or the prophet, whether the prophet who is speaking or some other prophet. A second interpretation is kind of a generalization of that, um, which would see this as a portrayal of a kind of essential type or concept or role, which is to say this is a depiction of the role of the prophet. This is what the place of the prophet is, to stand there between God and his people and to suffer for their sins and to bring the truth and to bear the guilt, and to bear the shame, and to bear the illness. In other words, this is not necessarily one specific person, but it is a type. It refers to anyone who takes on that role um, of being the spokesperson for the divine, for, for Hashem, the God of Israel. Now, it's maybe appropriate to mention already here that in biblical Hebrew, Navi, which is usually translated as prophet, means something like spokesperson. So it's not really about predicting the future, which is what many people think of when they hear the word prophecy. It's more about speaking the truth from God, speaking the words of God. And that might involve predicting the future. Sometimes it it could, but it's much more than that. So I think this second interpretation is 
uh, also informed by the idea that the prophet is speaking for God. And that brings about a lot of difficulty in this world that is not perfect and not always truthful. The third interpretation is that it refers to the nation of Israel as a whole. Now, this interpretation was made popular by medieval rabbis like Rashi and Ibn Ezra, and it has now become the most popular interpretation among Jewish apologists, um, those who are operating from within Judaism. And that is partly in response to the primary Christian interpretation, which is that it refers to Jesus. So Nick was talking earlier about Jewish-Christian uh, relations and, uh, and apologetics. And so the main Christian interpretation today, of course, is that this refers to Jesus. And the main Jewish interpretation, we could say, is that it refers to the nation of Israel suffering throughout history um, for the sins of the world, in a sense. Now, a fourth option, and this is one that goes back all the way to the Talmud, early texts of rabbinic Judaism, but has become much more prominent now with, with the approach of modern scholarship, is that the text is referring to a righteous remnant from within the nation of Israel. In other words, not the whole nation, but a group that remained faithful to God. And part of the rest of the group, or part, part of the rest of Israel, the majority, was not being faithful to God. And that's why there's so much suffering here. Then we have two uh, other interesting ones that I threw in. I could have uh, added a few more, but um, just to let you know, these are not the only interpretations that have been proposed. Um, there is one interpretation from Wilshire that proposes that it's actually a servant city that's being depicted. In other words, it's a depiction of Zion or Jerusalem, the conquered and humiliating, humiliated city that God will restore. Um, and then there's another interpretation at the end uh, that views this text as a fictional drama that features a tragic life story. The, you know, it's, it's presenting a kind of fictional story of, of a person um, who suffers in this way. Context is everything. So before we get into the specifics of Isaiah 53, we should look at where this chapter belongs in the book of Isaiah. Are the thoughts of chapter 53 the crescendo, or are they the beginning of an argument? Are there other servant songs that chapter 53 is thematically connected to? Nick is going to take us on a quick summary of the type of terminology and the developing message in this part of Isaiah. Our context is going to be something called Second Isaiah. Um, most scholars at this point in modern scholarship believe that this, this text, Isaiah 40 through 55, was written by a different author or set of authors than what's called First Isaiah, which is Isaiah 1 through 39. Now, for our purposes, there's debate about this. It doesn't really matter about who the author was or authors were, but it's certainly clear that from a literary perspective, Isaiah 40 through 55 is its own unit. It's telling its own story. It is, it's contained as a literary piece. So for our purposes, because the servant songs appear within what's called second Isaiah, we need to assess Second Isaiah as a complete unit, if we're going to understand Isaiah 53 or any of the other texts um, that are the so-called servant songs. Now, I should say the servant song, that, that term is a scholarly term. It does, never appears in the text itself. But there are these little poetic units that are, so this is, if you want to check this out, you can find this in really Isaiah 41 and 42. 
Um, and then there's a more complete song in 49 and 50. And then we get to the last one, which is 52 and 53. So that's kind of what we're dealing with. We're going to focus on the final song, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. So what we've got to do is go to the beginning of Isaiah, second Isaiah. That's Isaiah chapter 40. So let's do that. It begins, if we read it in Hebrew, with I want with what I want to call sacrificial language. That is what the priests do in the Torah when they're in the tabernacle sacrificing animals for the forgiveness of sins. And um, rather than the animal sacrifices that we see in Leviticus, Isaiah 40 envisions the exile to Babylon. So the collective exile to Babylon um, that happens in 586 BCE as a kind of collective sacrifice that that Israel somehow or some sort of group within Israel is the sacrificial object as opposed to an animal like in Leviticus. But what Isaiah is trying to show is that God has accepted this exile or the people, the suffering of the people in exile as a kind of offering that will ultimately lead to the atonement and forgiveness for all Israel. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 40, first couple of verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her service, which is tzva'ah in Hebrew, that her service is fulfilled. That's a priestly service, by the way. That's the word for how the priests work in the temple. That also that the punishment for her iniquity is accepted. That word for accepted in Hebrew is nirtzah. That's also a priestly word, as I'll show in a second. And that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Those are the very first sentences we get. So what do we have? We have a sinful Israel who's been thrown into exile for her sins, spent a period of time in exile suffering, and that this suffering somehow is priestly in its activity and its goal, um, its service somehow that is accepted as an offering or a sacrifice by God. So that's what we get right away. And if we can read the Hebrew, it, it makes it much more clear. And the priestly sacrificial language that we see at the beginning of Second Isaiah in chapter 40 actually reemerges when we get reference to it with the so-called suffering servant in Isaiah 53. So then by the end of this of this text of the second Isaiah, the servant is put in this position of a sacrifice. So let's read it. It says, in Hebrew, surely our afflictions, the servant carried, nasa, that carry language is very sacrificial. And he bore our sorrows and we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. But then it says he was pierced for our transgressions. The word for transgression there is pesha. He was crushed for our avon, our iniquities um, or our sins. He was crushed. Then the chastisement upon him brought us shalom brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And then it says, but it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him pain or make him sick in the altar translation. When you put up his nefesh, his life, as, a, as an asham, a guilt offering, he shall see seed and prolong his days, and the desire of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So all this language, nasa, pesha, avon, shalom, nefesh, asham, all these terms are priestly sacrificial terms that we also see in the book of Leviticus, okay? So we've got all this sacrificial language. Now, we've got that as a frame, sacrifice, priestliness. 
But who's the servant? You know, how do we identify this? Well, it's important to just check out every single time we see Eved, we see servant, servant Adonai or um, Avdi, my servant. So let's take a look. Isaiah 41 is where we first get it. Here's what it says. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, um, you whom I took from the ends of the earth, and it goes on and on. You are my servant, says God. Okay. And I have not cast you off. Fear not. I'm with you. So first, clearly, obviously, the servant is corporate collective Israel as a whole. That Israel who's been suffering in exile, right? Period. That's, that's the first servant we get is the nation of Israel. So let's look at the next one. I won't read all of this, but, um, but just I'll, I'll indicate where, who the servant is in any given case. So we're into the next chapter, Isaiah 42. The, the servant then is charged with a mission for all of Israel, all right? So here's what Isaiah 42 says. Behold, this is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I put my spirit upon him and he'll teach justice to the nations. He won't cry out and make his voice heard in the streets. This is all very familiar, by the way. This is cited of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. Um, and so what we have is like, it, this could be the nation of, of Israel, but this, this entity, this individual, this servant, or this group of people is charged with some sort of mission to the nations. So, you know, it, it starts to shift a little bit, okay? There's almost like this servant within the people of Israel. In Isaiah 42, the servant's mission reaches to both the people of Israel and to the other nations of the world, the Gentiles. Here's Isaiah 42, 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and grasped you by the hand. I formed you and appointed you as a covenant of a people, as a light of nations. Now, the problem is here, here's our poetry problem again. This, this terminology could be a covenant for a people, which I think is the people of Israel, because Ami, my people, always and only means the people of Israel in Isaiah, in Second Isaiah. And then also as a light, Legoim, so it could be a light of nations, a light to nations, a light for nations. That little L, that little Lamed, uh, functions in, in all sorts of different ways. So this is just my personal translation, but I'm certainly open to other options for this. But what the point we have to take away here is, despite some ambiguity in the Hebrew, is that it's clear that the servant is grasped by God's hand to you know, perform some act or mission for Israel and for the nations. There's a waxing and a, and a waning to this. It's, you know, it's almost like ocean waves go, coming in and going out because the text is, is going to shift, bounce from, is this an individual? In some of the songs, it sounds like it. Is it a, a small group within a group? In some of the songs, it sounds like it. Is it Israel as a whole? Well, as we've already seen, some texts make that explicit that it is. And so it's it's wobbling through these different options, but it's doing it on purpose, actually. Uh, it's doing it on purpose. It's supposed to be, you're supposed to be identifying it in these kind of um, myriad ways. Yeah, I think that what you just said, Nick, is very, very important. I think sometimes it's very frustrating when we see a text that doesn't give us a very clear answer and shifts from one to another. And when you're interpreting it and when you're reading it, sometimes it feels it feels like maybe you are not understanding well enough and that you should go deeper or maybe. But sometimes we also have to understand that the text 
is built in that way because it wanted to give you more than one possible interpretation because more than one possible interpretation was part of what the text was intended to, which doesn't mean there was anything could be, but it means that this ambiguity is also part of the thing. And mm -hmm. we will see that a bit later when we get to the Dead Sea Scrolls, how this ambiguity it plays out in the text. Arguably, some of us are more comfortable with ambiguity than others, right? We like to go for the exact singular meaning of something. But what do we do when there's an invitation in the text itself to explore possibilities? And for that conversation, connecting with Dead Sea Scrolls, you will have to wait until next week. Right now, let's continue with Nick's explanation of the servant language in Second Isaiah, especially the process of trying to figure out if the servant is a collection of people or a singular person. So the servant language um, then shifts back to the exiled collective, um, the sinful people of Israel who deserve, deserve the, their exile. So here's what Isaiah 42 says. I, I can, I'll kind of skip through some of this, but God promises to lead the people back to the land of Israel. But what God says after that ellipses at, in the third line, God says, I'll lead the blind by, by a way they don't know and paths they don't know, I'll guide them. I'll turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. This is just metaphor for bringing the people home from Babylon. And then God says something interesting through the prophet. Listen, you who are deaf and you who are blind, Look up and see who is blind but my servant, or deaf like my messenger whom I send. Who is blind like my dedicated one, or blind like the Eved Hashem, the servant of the Lord? And so here we, we've got the servant of the Lord language pretty explicitly being um, attributed to the currently blind collective who need to be led home by paths they've never known. So it's, it's wobbling kind of back and forth. Is it someone who's righteous, who's going to help Israel or a group who's going to help Israel? Or is it the sinful, you know, collective wallowing in Israel? Well, here it's clearly, or I clearly, I would say the clear, the clear, <laughs> the clearer option is that the servant here is blind and deaf and in need of help uh, in exile. Yep. Then it starts to become clear that the righteous servant of the Lord is a part or a subset of the broader blind collective of Israel in exile. The righteous servant is both called Israel, the nation, and charged to bring Israel back to God. I think this is the easily the most important um, song, I mean, maybe apart from 53, but for understanding this idea of shifting and the waxing and waning of the identity of the servant. So here's Isaiah 49. Okay, hear far off regions to me, all right, and give heed far away nations. The Lord appointed me. So this me is now this is now the first person speaking of the servant. All right. So the, the Lord appointed me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He said to me, quote, You are my servant Israel, in whom I display my beauty. And then the servant Israel responds, I've labored in vain and spent my strength for nothing, an empty breath. Um, and the Lord has resolved, um, and now the Lord has resolved, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant. Okay, here we go. To bring back Jacob to himself and to gather Israel to himself. Now, so this, check out the first bolded 
phrase, you are my servant Israel, says God to this servant. Then the very next thing is, yeah, I'm the servant, but I've been charged to gather Israel back to God. And then God said to me, the servant, it's too little a thing that you should be a servant to me to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore Israel that I have preserved. I will also make you a light of nations or a light to the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. So we've got the servant called Israel, but it's clear that the servant is some sort of righteous actor within the broader people of Israel charged to bring those people back to God somehow. I'm not sure how else you could read this text. So this is like a, a, a capsule of in one passage that going back and forth, first called Israel, then charged with a mission to bring Israel back to God. Yeah, you have to try to make sense of it in some way. You can't view it as just 100% strictly literal, which you can never really view poetry that way. But if you were to try to do that, you'd say, well, the servant is Israel and the job of the servant Israel is to gather the servant Israel. And it just kind of <laughs> right. loses some meaning here. So there must be something else going on. Yeah, something's got to be happening, you know, because it's it's the there's a preserved group of Israel, but it's too little a thing that you should be a servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. How could the whole collective of the tribes of Jacob raise themselves up? That That doesn't make... A ton of sense. And in fact, it's God who's going to do this through the servant. The Israel can't do it for themselves. That, that kind of undercuts the entire message of second Isaiah. Okay. So uh, just to round out Isaiah 49, that particular servant song, thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel, his holy one. All right. This is really key. Abhorred of a nation to the slave of rulers. Okay. Kings shall see and stand up. Nobles shall prostrate themselves to the honor of the Lord, who is faithful to the Holy One of Israel, who chose you. Thus said the Lord, I created you as a covenant of a people to raise up the land, to allot anew the desolate places, saying to the prisoners, go free, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. So this bolded stuff I have up, up front here, to a despised life, to one abhorred, um, to the slave of rulers, that sounds like the people of Israel. Kings shall see and stand up. That is almost exactly what the beginning of Isaiah, the fourth Isaiah song says, that kings will shut their mouths because of this servant. Um, and so we get rumblings of what we'll read in Isaiah 53 or 52, end of 52, right here in Isaiah 49. So it's very clear that the servant of Isaiah 49 is the same entity of Isaiah 53. These things will have to be connected along as we go. Um, but what Isaiah is doing here is just setting up terminology for us, just layering terminology and kind of, again, living in that intermundia, that middle space between the collective sinful nation of Israel, who deserves to be in exile, and some sort of righteous remnant within Israel that's going to save the rest of Israel, something like that. And uh, as we'll see, we actually need to go to different texts in the Bible outside of Isaiah in order to try to better make sense of this stuff. Having nuanced and geeky conversations like this is very characteristic of Israel Bible Center. If you participate in our monthly online seminars, you will always see the faculty discussing differing points of view on a large variety of issues. If you like these kinds of conversations and are not yet connected to the vast resources of Israel Bible Center, 
consider enrolling as a student. From the comfort of your own home and at your own pace, you can take classes and within a year, earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>